0: Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. When news broke from the president himself that he had tested positive for COVID-19, along with his wife and several others with whom he had been in contact recently, the first concern was, of course, health, then the continuity of government, and then possibly the effects on the U.S. presidential election. In this podcast, host and Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with Drs. Bill Lang and Fred Southwick about how businesses can learn from this event to review their continuity planning and their virus control. Let's listen in.
1: Bill and Fred, again, an honor, privilege to have a few minutes of your time to discuss recent developments with respect to the pandemic. Uh, I'm not going to get into the headline, which everyone is al- already discussing about uh, President Trump and his wife obviously wishing them a safe, healthy, and speedy recovery. Bill, maybe you can give us some of the the lessons that are being reinforced by this particular moment about how companies and other institutions should be thinking about this risk. Again, it's not going to be a straight line. There's going to be a lot of volatility, ups and downs uh, for a while, but clearly uh, there's some lessons to be reinforced.
2: Right. I think the most important thing is to realize that, that you've through all of this, and with not just COVID-19, but just about anything, it's about risk management. And so you're not gonna be able to eliminate the risk of COVID-19, just like you can't eliminate the, the various other kinds of risks, but you can mitigate those risks and you can manage those risks. And that, that's what has to be done now. We'll talk in a couple of minutes about some of the ways that you can or should be thinking about mitigating those risks, but that's what it's about. The other side of that means that if you do, in fact, you're mitigating these risks, the risk still exists. You can never eliminate the risk or it's very difficult to eliminate the risk. So you also have to have a plan for what you're going to do if you a key person in your organization does, in fact, become sick. I'm hoping that they don't get it because you have a good risk mitigation strategy in place. Is, is not a strategy. The old story, hope is not a strategy. You actually have to have a plan. What are you going to do if your leader, the President of the United States in, in this case, becomes ill or becomes potentially ill with this infection? There has to be a very detailed plan. The White House has that. The White House has very clear plans as to what will happen to ensure the continuity of the presidency. But do all organizations have those plans? I would, I would argue that many don't, and that's a, that may be the most important lesson to take out of this.
1: Okay, so is education and communication. Maybe you can share with the audience some of the basic lessons as part of a continuity plan, contingency plan.
2: Sure, uh, one of the most important things for an organization, you have to recognize that people are hungry for information. That's why right now, one of the biggest questions that's being asked of the White House is, are you going to be transparent about what's going on? So if you do not, as an organization, have a plan for giving your your personnel reliable, accurate, and timely information, they're going to go get that information someplace else. And we know that the Internet is not generally a source of reliable, accurate, and timely information. So you're gonna have personnel in your organization who are either scared or passing bad information. So you need to be right on top of that, managing information, educating your personnel.
1: And obviously for leaders of public companies, you have many stakeholders beyond your own uh, employees. You have your investors and obviously a very interested uh, public media. Fred, turning to you, When these situations happen, and this week we've seen it with football teams, and maybe you can walk the audience who, you know, sort of the simple, as as Bill was referencing, the contingency plan of what does an enterprise do next when they find out that somebody, you know, does in fact have the disease.
3: David, what you need to do then, you've got to contact Trace. You've got to to identify everyone that was in close contact with we call that the index case if they were in contact with them and closer than six feet for over 15 minutes and they weren't wearing masks then they are need to be quarantined and you the problem is when you're exposed the tests don't turn positive generally for four to five days after that exposure so for that period of time, you should quarantine them. It doesn't make sense to test them because you're likely to have a false negative. But then at five days approximately, you should test them. The other thing that I recommend for all close contacts is that they take their core temperature twice per day, uh, using uh, usually a thermometer under the tongue, and keep track of what their temperature is. Because for the first three or four days, it will be that normal temperature. Then if it goes up over 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit over what their baseline is, that is a fever. So that will usually be the first warning that they have the disease. Also, you would follow with whatever test, either antigen or PCR test, at about four to five days to determine whether they were infected.
1: What you are saying is, number one, uh, this notion that after you learn you've been exposed, a test within one day or two days is basically unreliable. Two, taking one's temperature. Uh, I didn't hear you use uh, the term forehead scan. I heard under the tongue.
3: Forehead scans are highly unreliable.
1: Okay. And third, there's a certain amount of self-monitoring that people must do over succeeding days and additional tests that need to be done.
2: David, I'd like to chime in here also though. As, as Fred said, yeah, so at five days, that's a, that is the first time when it really would make sense to get a test. But a negative test at five days does not clear you. The incubation period for this disease can go up to 14 days, generally speaking. Now, testing along the way can decrease the risk, but the risk is still going to be measurable regardless of what your test status is out to 14 days.
1: And that notwithstanding negative tests along the way, possibly not having a temperature, Uh, it is still important for people to be mindful about their own conditions and very vigilant about their own conditions for the full 14 days.
3: Yeah, sometimes they can be very subtle symptoms. Sometimes people will say they just feel a little more tired than they were before. Another one that's very specific, if you get that, you have the disease, and that's if you lose your sense of smell and taste. That's only in about 10% of patients. But you can have a vague headache, just feel bad, have a little bit of muscle aches. And then generally, you do get a cough. A dry hacking cough is is very frequent. It's in about 60 to 70% of patients. And uh, when you look at the studies, the rigorous studies, 90 to 95% of patients do, uh, they record a fever. So fever is the most sensitive of all the symptoms.
1: Let me take this a little bit further and talk to you about treatment options. And uh, can you just break down why people should be consulting a physician and why each case is different and people's medical histories and their age and things are relevant?
3: Yes. It's really hard to decide who needs to be hospitalized. And uh, one thing that we all agree on is the course of the disease is highly variable And therefore, you should stay in contact with some sort of health provider every day during your illness, particularly if you're older. We know that when you get to 50 or above, there is actually a straight line increase in mortality and complications for people as you get older and older. It gets more and more dangerous. Uh, Americans at age 70 to 79, the mortality among males in New York City, this is 5,500 cases. Was 34 percent. So if you're an older individual, you should be followed very, very closely by a physician, and they should have a low threshold for admitting you. And then, if you also have underlying diseases, which commonly come as you get older, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, or chronic lung disease, or if you've had cancer, it turns out obesity is also a risk factor. Those make you even even more dangerous to you. And therefore, you want to intervene earlier in these patients than you would, say, a 20-year-old.
2: Fred, I think it's important to note, though, you said that age 70 to 79, a 33, roughly, percent uh, fatality rate. But that that was also early on in the in the course of this, we've learned a little bit better how to manage. And that's true. true. Yes, true. Yes. And so so I want to make sure people are not hearing that and thinking, oh, my God, we have a 33% chance the president is going to die. That's not at all the case.
3: No, I think in, in New York, uh, the number of cases was absolutely overwhelming. And it's not clear that everybody was able to get the attention that they should have received medically uh, when there was that giant surge. And that's one of the important things is why we all need to Uh, adhere to the infection control measures so that our our health systems do not become overwhelmed again because that increases the uh, likelihood of a bad outcome.
1: Okay, and all patients are not created equally as both of you had said, and obviously the president will be getting the best of care. But Bill, let me just quickly pivot to you for a short point that I want to emphasize because you've talked about communication and education. In terms of managing the risk inside your enterprise. Part of what I know both of you have spoken about is the importance of raising one's hand when you're not well, not feeling as though this could be a stigma, not feeling that. I remember the phrase, you know, people were very uh, prone to say, I'm not feeling well, I'm sick, but I'm going to power through this and continue to work. The ability to contain this risk inside of an enterprise, Bill, is dependent upon one's raising one's hand, communicating how you are, and obviously not only testing, but the contact tracing. And maybe you could just take a moment about how an organization can encourage the culture of self-reporting.
2: Well, sure. One thing that uh, during the days of pandemic influenza, there was the term that was used presenteeism. I I don't hear that used as much anymore, but that's exactly what you're referring to. Someone who is present, but by their presence, they are decreasing their own productivity and decreasing the productivity and the the overall risk to the people around them. So you need to look at changing the culture, change the culture away from you must power through, which is very different for a lot of, um, especially in financial services organizations, even in the medical field. But now with COVID-19, and I would argue also with influenza, just the general seasonal influenza, if you try to power through that, you're putting people at risk. So you need to change that that culture. And then from the organizational standpoint, you need to have the support structures in place so that people feel they can miss work if they need to. So at the professional level, it means that the professionals are, are taught and the culture is there. But at the hourly worker level, hourly workers, if they don't come to work, they don't get paid. So there needs to be mechanisms in place that support their ability to make the right decision to not come to work when they may be infectious and thereby infecting other people in their organization.
1: Uh, As I mentioned to you, I had a chance to speak with an executive who uh, returned from Japan, having been there for over two months, uh, and explaining to me why his entire family uh, actually felt safer and more comfortable in Japan than they were in the United States Uh, the level of normal activity was in terms of street life and actually dining at restaurants was close to normal, Uh, but that the compliance with mask wearing was absolutely 100%. And explaining to me that they already had in place that compliance culture with respect to mask wearing uh, if somebody is sick. And obviously, you know, this predates COVID-19, but whether somebody had a common cold, flu, just felt a little bit off, perfectly normal for people to put on masks and for it to be accepted in the society as an obligation. So closing statements, Bill, maybe you want to start and then Fred.
2: I guess my closing statement on this would be that it goes back to the education, that People need people want to do the right thing, but they have to be enabled, given the the tools, the education, the training, uh, and the HR level support to be able to do the right thing um, and then the one other point that I'd like to make is that you, as you we see what 's going on currently with the White House and people are talking about having the contact trace hundreds if not thousands of people well. Remember that if, you, if you're thinking of your organization and you're thinking of, well, what if, you need to think about, right, how do we keep people separated so even if we're doing all the right things, somebody does come up positive in the organization, how can we minimize the number of people that we are in fact going to have to contact to trace? And I think a lot of organizations are doing that. And in fact, wrapping back to the White House, if you really get down to it, there are very, very few people who are allowed ever to get within six feet of the president. And there are even fewer who are allowed to be there for more than 15 minutes. So in reality, they probably are not gonna to have to contact trace hundreds, if not thousands of people. So at an organizational level, thinking about those kinds of things can make the management of the event, if it ever does happen to occur, much, much easier. So the other thing to keep in mind, David, is that in other cultures in the world, They had to deal with the disease even worse than COVID-19 a few years ago, and that was SARS. SARS had a much, much higher fatality rate. So what happened with that is that it became culturally appropriate, culturally accepted, culturally demanded that you wear masks routinely and regularly. In fact, to this day, in much of Asia, if you do not wear a mask, When you have a respiratory infection, that would almost be like in the United States if you blow your nose into your hands and then wipe it on your shirt.
1: Interesting insight. Uh, Fred, your closing statement here in terms of, you know, the takeaway lessons.
3: There are now a huge number of epidemiologic studies that show when there's reliable use of masks, you can reduce the spread by over 80%. The other important thing to keep in mind, it was originally emphasized, the mask protected others from you if you were infected, uh, you from spreading to others. But it's now become clear that if you wear a mask, the amount of the number of urines you would become exposed to, the number of viral particles would be lower. And if you have a lower exposure, it's likely your disease will be milder. So by wearing a mask, you protect others and you also protect yourself and can really dramatically reduce the spread of this infection and allow us all to go out in public relatively safely the way they are doing in Asia.
1: Bill, Fred, thank you again for the insights we'll be posting on our website again in a very simple form, the checklist of symptoms and the checklist of steps that people need to take. Thanks again.
2: Thank you, Dave.
1: Thank you.
0: Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Individuals and organizations turn to Rain for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more, visit rainnetwork.com join. That's R-A-N-E com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.